welcome to our verse-by-verse -verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. For those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel, learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. a little word of prayer and then we're going to get into our study for this morning heavenly father we do praise you and thank you for again lord i just like we could pray all day um, but lord you've given us a, a series of things to do this morning and and the next thing we're going to do is we're going to open up your word and we know lord that um the word is powerful the word can change our lives but lord we have to open our hearts to receive it and so I pray, Lord, that as we've taken this time this morning, prayed several times, we've worshiped, we've given, Lord, all of the things we've done this morning are all in preparation for you speaking to us a message that you want to say to us. And there's, there, it's, it's, a, it's miraculous to me how um, this, this brief message, well, relatively brief message, Lord, will minister to each one of us if we'll just open our hearts to receive. And so we pray that you do that right now. I'm going to lift up uh, Laura and her family again as they um, are, uh, we've done the memorial service, we've been to the memorial service, but Lord, the grief doesn't just end. And so I pray that you'd minister to Laura and her family as they, as they, they mourn the loss of her mother. We praise you, Lord, for this day, and we look forward to what you're going to do in it, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Laura was planning to be here. Laura and Annie were planning to be here, but then Laura heard her back yesterday, so um, they're watching online, right? Wave to us if you're watching. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm going to read a few verses out of chapter 11 before we get into chapter 12 because they set the stage for us on what we're going to look at today. So if you're in, in your, have your Bible open, we're going to start in chapter 11, verse 28, and then, uh, then we'll move on. Chapter 11, verse 28, come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the things that God promises us through faith in Jesus Christ is rest. And we're living in a time of unrest. We're living in a time where the world is, is spinning wildly, in some cases out of control, in ways that are just hard for us to even deal with. So no matter how restless this world becomes, we can find rest in Jesus he is the source of our rest, the only source of rest. We can look in other places. We can look in people. We can look in things. We can look in drugs and alcohol. We can look in wrong relationships. We can look in 
spiritual experiences, but ultimately, it's got to be Jesus. If you really want to find a rest that will give you the peace that your heart desires. Verse, verse 1 of chapter 12. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is mentioned 172 times in the Bible. Interestingly, when, you know, when you're studying the Bible, sometimes you find some interesting facts. Of the 172 times, only once does it appear after the book of Acts. I just thought that was interesting. Probably a good study for something in the future. The Sabbath was a remembrance of God resting on the seventh day of creation. God created everything that we know and see around us in, in six days, and then on the seventh day, he rested or he stopped working on creation. God then gave to the descendants of Abraham through Moses the Sabbath as a day of rest from regular work. They were to take this day and pause their life from the daily routines, the daily things that they were doing, in, and, and to pause from that, not, not just to rest, but then to turn their hearts and eyes to God. That, that for at least one day a week, they would put God in their minds and hearts, that, that for one day a week, they would, they would allow God to take center stage in their lives. Over time, the Jews shifted the focus from resting and worshiping. They shifted it more and more to worship and then, and then they continue shifting it and, and turning it into a religious experience, a religious exercise. Not an experience, but an exercise. The Sabbath rules became so burdensome that people could not rest or worship. One of the rules involves something that, and, and if, if you ever get a chance, no, don't waste your time. Well, I was going to say, if you ever, ever want to get into it, you can read some of the rules they had for it. Some of them are absolutely ridiculous and bizarre. Yeah. I was going to give you a few of them, but we just don't have time for it. But one of them involves something that happens here in verse, continue verse 1. And his disciples were hungry. That's a, that's a key part of this verse. Or were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So they're walking along and there's grain fields around them, one side or the other, maybe both. And as they're walking along, maybe even through a grain field, they're hungry and they just reach out and grab a handful of grain. Well, you can't just eat it right off the, off the stock. You, you know, they would rub it in their hands to, to break out this, the, the grain inside the husk. And, and then they would pop it in their mouth and eat it. It was, it was not that uncommon. Um, it was actually even allowed for in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure. You can do that at our house too. We have, still have tons of grapes at our house. 
but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So the idea is someone's hungry and they're away from home and they're walking through around or by a neighbor's vineyard or, or their, their grain or whatever, they, it was perfectly normal and legitimate to, to eat your fill, to eat your fill of, of that grain or grapes or whatever. Well, there's always somebody around that's not happy about the good things of God. Verse 2, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he, that would be Christ, said to them, have you not heard, read, what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless. The Pharisees, we're going to see them a lot as we study through the, the book. We have already seen them a few times. We're going to continue to see them. They always seem to have a problem with Jesus, and the problem was that Jesus didn't follow their rules. It should always cause you pause when God is bothered by your rules. It should make you wonder, wait a minute, wait a minute. If God's not happy about the way I think of things, the way I look at things, the way I view things, maybe something's wrong with God, right? Uh, no, no. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism, were very rigid in their following of the law. And so they took the law and they interpreted the law and their, and their goal in life, they, 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 the way that we please God is by this strict adherence to the law of Moses. The problem with the law of Moses, it didn't give them specifics on every detail of life. It said certain things, but then a scenario would come up and say, okay, well, but what about this? What about that? You're not supposed to work, but can you spit on the ground on the, on the Sabbath? Which, by the way, was against the rules. Can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Because they, they interpreted it and they said, okay, well, here's a scenario where something could happen and here's a, here's a rule. Here's, here's one of the law, part of the law of Moses. You know, the Sabbath is do no regular work. And so every little detail and nuance of life, then they created a rule around that nuance to determine how they could live in a way that pleased God. They came up with 613 of them, these different rules. If you want to please God, you must live in adherence to all, all 613 rules. I don't know about you. I am absolutely certain I can't even remember. It took me, it took me several years to remember there were 613 of them. The number 613 let alone trying to remember what they were. I never tried to remember those rules. But the reality is, is that it was, became such a burden. And the, and the Pharisees, they, they lived their lives to point at people and say, ah, 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 ah. Here, break it. I don't know why I'm pointing at Kelly. She, is, she probably has all 613 memorized. 
I'll point at Chuck. You know, the, the reality, because I know he doesn't, okay? You know, the, the reality is, is that it became such a burden that, you know, that, you know and, they, and they became very rigid and legalistic about it. And, and, and you know, if you've been around us for very long, one of the things you real about us, realize about us as a church, we are not legalistic. Matter of fact, if you try to get legalistic around me, my, it, it, just, it, it just makes my skin crawl. And I'm going to probably call you out on it. It's just not the way we're supposed to be. God has called us to a freedom in faith, to walk with him, to, you know, to, to, to obey his laws, but not to make our own rules in relation to his laws. Jesus came along and turned many of those rules on their heads because they did not come from God. In Mark's chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, it says this, He answered them and said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So he, what, what Jesus is saying there, again, to the Pharisees, is saying to them, hey, you, you act like you're believers. You act like you worship God, but your heart is far from me. The, the reality is that what they were doing was not an expression of the love of God. It was something else. And instead of, instead of worshiping God, they're, they're teaching these doctrines of man, these rules, these 613 rules that they had established were just saying that, you know, those didn't come from God. Why would, God in the flesh speaking, why would I demand that people obey your commands rather than God's commands? According to the law of Moses, no regular work was to be done on the Sabbath. How do you interpret that? Well, that's what Jesus is going to address as we go through it. Some interpreted that plucking a handful of grain and rubbing it together was equivalent of harvesting and threshing. You know, the act of harvesting a field. If you grab one handful and rub it together, you're doing the regular work of harvesting. Now, you know, some of these guys were fishermen. They probably never threshed anything, let alone grain on a regular basis. And David reminds them of a couple of, he gives them a couple of examples. David, King David is fleeing. He wasn't king at the time, but he's fleeing from King Saul and, and, he, and he goes to the priest Ahimelech and, and he's hungry. Doesn't have any food. He goes to the priest, give me some food. Ahimelech says, all I have is the showbread. That's the 12 loaves that they would put in the presence in, in the tabernacle before there was a temple. In the tabernacle, it was in the presence of God. It was called the bread of presence. It was put in uh, 12 loaves, fresh loaves every Sabbath day. Then they were taken out and the priests would eat those loaves that came out. And they were meant for the priests. And, and so David goes to Ahimelech and, and Ahimelech says, I, all I have is the bread that, you know, the, the bread that we've taken out of the presence. That's all I have. And Ahimelech gives it to him. He was hungry. And Jesus is saying that, that it, wasn't, it wasn't wrong for him to do that. 
David was hungry, and there was, there was food. Ahimelech gave him food. And then it refers to the fact that the priests regularly profane the Sabbath. You know what that means? They were doing regular work on the Sabbath. When somebody brought an animal to be sacrificed on the Sabbath, they did the job of sacrificing that animal. They did their regular work on the Sabbath. And Jesus says they, they, they're guiltless. The point he was making to them is that they had completely misinterpreted what God's desire, what God's heart was. God wants worship. He wants us to love him and to worship him, to adore him. And all the commandments of man, all these rules and regulations of man can do is get in the way of that. That doesn't mean we can just do whatever we want. That doesn't mean that we can, you know, well, you know, you worship God that way, I'll worship him this way, and, you know, if I want to, you know, get little crystals and line them up in rows and dance around them, that's how I worship God? Okay, okay that's weird. Don't do that. Um, but the reality is, is that the God says, you know, hey, just love me. Just love me. He's given us his word. He's, he's made it very clear to us how he wants us to love him. And it's not with all these rules and regulations. And then Jesus says something that, that would have shocked the Pharisees as well as it really any devout Jew. He says, yet I say to you that in this place where they were at, there is one greater than the temple. That would have been seismic in, in rattling the Pharisees. Pharisees looked at the temple. The temple was the center of the universe to the Jews. And if they had one today, it would still be the center of the universe. They want to build one. They will build one eventually. But, but to them, that, that indicated the presence of God. And so for them, that, that, that was where people were to go to worship God. Where they could focus their worship on God. But it was not God. It's where God said his presence would be known. Most Jews would never have an experience with God, even in the temple. Even those priests that would go into the temple to do the daily work, even the high priests that would go in behind the veil once a year would rarely have a real experience with God. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer here today, you have no idea how favored you are, how blessed you are. We are, the, we are the temple of God, and God dwells in us. We don't have to go someplace to hope that we might experience the presence of God. You know where you can experience the presence of God? Wherever you are. You could experience him right this very moment. Gosh, I hope you would. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? Everywhere you go, God is right there. He is in you. All of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. Don't ask me to explain it. It's too big for me, but it's radical. For the Jews, they had to travel to Jerusalem, to the temple, and bring a sacrifice and to do all these things in the hopes that they might experience God. 
You know what we have to do? We open our heart. We still our mind. And we ask God, God, would you speak to me now? Would you help me to know your presence right now? As we worship, we can know the very presence of God in a way that, that the, the most Jews will never experience, have never experienced. They can, same way we do, through faith in Jesus Christ. That's a hard hill for them to climb, but they could. Everywhere we go, God is with us. And then Jesus tells them where their error is, verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is saying, you're condemning these men because they grab a handful of grain because they're hungry. They are guiltless, means there is no guilt. They are not guilty of violating any of God's laws. In fact, they're doing what God's law said is perfectly lawful. If you knew what, God, what God's word says, and he quotes this verse out of Hosea 6.6, 6, and he had actually quoted it in a couple of chapters ago as well. This is a big deal to Jesus. He's saying that, that God desires mercy more than sacrifice. That's saying a lot to a Jew, to a, especially to a Pharisee. Saying God wants mercy, not sacrifice, because the Jews, the Pharisees especially, lived the sacrifices. To the, to the Jews, the sacrifice was everything. It was how they knew they were right with God, of keeping the law and making those sacrifices. It's all connected, and that's how we do it. And, and Jesus is saying the sacrifice, eh, has nothing compared to mercy. Mercy, when mercy, for if we're, if we're receiving mercy, is not getting what we deserve. What do you think it means when we do it for others? It's not giving what someone deserves. Someone offends us, not retaliating. Somebody, somebody needs something, but you know, they don't deserve it. Okay, give it to them anyway. The Pharisees are judging the disciples as lawbreakers, and Jesus accuses them of not understanding their scriptures. You're experts in the law. You're experts in the things of God. Maybe, but you don't understand them. You know how we teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse? So that we can understand the scriptures. Because in understanding the scriptures, that we can know how to walk with God, how to walk in the freedom and, the, and, the, and the, the, the reality of the grace and mercy and hope and peace and joy, all the realities of who God is. We can walk in those things as we learn God through the scriptures. You know when we're going to stop teaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse? When you guys all get it. You know what that means, right? Yeah, I'll be doing it until Jesus calls me home. <laughs> I'll be doing it like that because I'm going to need it until Jesus calls me home. I study the scriptures, but, you know, I still have a long ways. I recognize I don't, I don't know everything. I don't understand everything. And every time, every time I come to a text, even a text that I've taught before, God opens up new things and new understanding that allows me to know him better. And by knowing him better, I can worship him more. I can obey him more quickly. I can share him more effectively. In humility, we ought to approach God in his word so that we can learn wisdom 
so that we can develop the discernment we need to go through life and make decisions because that what the Jews created was a system, if you follow these rules, you'll be okay. But those, those rules never covered every single facet of life. When we, go through, when we go through this life, we realize that things come up. I mean, I mean, I mean the, I, I've studied the Bible. The Bible does not tell me how to relate to the whole transgender issue. There, I can't go to chapter and verse and say, this is what it says, how you're supposed to deal with that. I have to trust God. I have to discern his spirit. I have to recognize who he is in every encounter, every thing, every relationship, every conversation. There are no rules. There is just the Holy Spirit and the word of God. I put those two together with discernment and the wisdom that God gives me through experience and through, through growing in knowledge, and he gives me what I need in that moment. That's the way God works. He doesn't want us to have a list of rules and regulation. He wants us to trust him with the very next step that we take, whatever that might be. And we don't need to have a rule for that. If we trust the Holy Spirit, he'll give us an idea. If you know who God is, you'll know certain things you're not supposed to do, right? Right? Well, no, okay, no, that, okay, you know, getting really angry and, you know, in your face with this person that talks to me, okay, that's probably not the right answer, right? Somebody nod your head so I can tell you're paying attention. Yes, it's not the right answer. Don't make me come back there. He's making me mad. He's making me mad right now. I'm kidding. And then if, if verse 7 wasn't controversial enough, verse 8 really just pushes it over the top. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a title that Jesus used regularly for himself. And um, it is associated with the Messiah out of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. In, in essence, what Jesus is saying is that man has no authority to make rules regarding the Sabbath. Only God does. The Sabbath, Jesus says elsewhere, was not, you know, man was not created for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man, and they had turned that upside down and made the man serving the Sabbath as opposed to the Sabbath serving man as it was as Jesus tells us very clearly, it was designed to do, to give us a time of rest and a time where we could open our hearts and, and seek God in a way that allows us to meet him wherever we are. This account leads to right into another confrontation with religious Jews, verse 9. Now when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, it's, on, it's still on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, being Christ, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And then Matthew adds a bit of commentary, that they might accuse him. There is so much in this verse. But one of the things that we see here, that this man, you know, we, we live in a time where if you have a disability, you know, things, you know, science and everything has developed to the point where you can be fairly functional. Not back then. You know, for, for a man to not have a use of one of his hands meant he probably wasn't going to be able to make much of a living because 
men had to work with their hands most, more often than not. And, it, and you get the sense here as, as, as they're talking, as they're, as they're doing this, that they really have no interest in healing this man. They, they, there's no sense of compassion for him. In their minds, this man's problem was impossible, right? I mean, is, was there anything they could do to heal this man's withered hand? Nope, nothing they could do. And so it appears that they felt justified using him and his pitiful situation as a tool to try to trap Jesus into doing or saying something that was wrong. Jesus never backed away from those encounters. But he was like, he was, well, he was pretty amazing in general, right? Somebody say, hallelujah, Jesus was pretty amazing. But every single time one of these people tried to trap him, his response would often have all the people around them like, what just happened here? They couldn't believe the way he would respond because his response was perfect. Well, that makes sense because what do we know about Jesus? He was what? Perfect. He, he is God in the flesh. He knows what they're trying to do. He knows what he's trying to do, and he knows the, how to navigate that, that, that trap in a way that, in, in fact, traps them in their hypocrisy. Verse 11. Then he said, what man is there among you who has one sheep and it falls into a pit, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. This is a deliberate act on Jesus' part. We need to recognize that. Jesus went in there. He sees this man with a withered hand. It's on the Sabbath. And he said, you know what? We need to set this man free. Could he have waited to the next day? Sure. Would it affected this man's life very much to wait to the next day and, and avoid the confrontation, to, to avoid, you know, this, 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 this trap? He could have. He said, I'm not doing that. He had compassion on that man right in that moment. It's a deliberate act on his part, not just to deal with this man's issue, but to confront the Pharisees in their hypocrisy. He's saying, this man, his hand is withered. It is a, it is a detriment to him. It is a, it's a disability to him. It is interfering with his life. Therefore, it's interfering with, with every element of his life, including how he worships God. And, and, and well, Jesus knew he could do something. I knew they couldn't do anything about it. And he says, but if you, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit, you're not going to leave it there. Oh, sorry, it's the Sabbath. You know, see you on, you know, see you on Sunday. He didn't do that. You would, he said, you would go down in there and you would save that, that animal just as if it was happened on Sunday or Tuesday or Friday. You'd go down there and do it. That, 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 in, that, in a Jew's mind, that's regular work. And yet, they had, they had enough compassion on that sheep to go down and get it. 
And he's saying, where's your compassion for this man? Verse 14, then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Religious legalism always leads to hardness of heart. And then it leads to the suffering of others, always. I can remember there were times in, in ministry where different religious organizations I was associated with over the time, they had rules. And I always, I always, they always made me cringe when, when this need comes up and somebody say, oh, we can't do that. And I'm thinking like, what? What do you mean we can't do that? This person has a need. Well, yeah, but it's Tuesday. We do those on Thursday. <laughs> okay. You know, that, I'm just making that up. I'm, it was something different than that. But it was, to me, it was as silly as that. If, we, if there's a need... And we have an ability to meet that need, even if the person that's supposed to meet that need isn't going to be here, isn't here. Shouldn't we try to meet that need? Shouldn't we try to do something? Shouldn't we try to show compassion? Oh, your marriage is falling apart. Sorry. The, the marriage guy, he doesn't show up until next week. Oh, okay. used to always just grind on me. I would do it. I would do whatever I needed to do. Okay, well, I'll, you know, better to ask forgiveness than permission, right? No, don't, don't, don't quote me on that. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Somebody's going to start breaking rules. I'm sorry, somebody start breaking rules. I've already got enough rule breakers in this church. Amen. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. Those, those who have the, that kind of hardness of heart, they might not even be saved. That, that, they're, that they're, there are many who, it's the rules that they worship, it's the, it's the religion that they worship, and not the God who gives a reason and a purpose for some of those things. And here, here's the truth. The unconverted heart hates God. Hates God even if they never express that hatred out loud. You cannot, the unconverted cannot love God. It's not possible. You need the Spirit of God to love God. And it should surprise us as believers, should not surprise us. When someone objects to our examples, Jesus does a good thing here, Right? Can we, can we acknowledge that healing this man, without touching him, by the way, he just tells him, hey, stretch out your hand. And what happened? He was healed. It should not surprise us when someone objects to us doing what is right and good and holy and true. Whether it's some deed or some word, when we speak a word of truth, there are going to be some who are going to object to it. Can we say, we know that? We, we maybe even experienced it. They're not responding to you. They're not, they're not objecting to you. They're objecting to the God who's living out of you. And we must never, 
never hesitate to let God out. When we're out and we're doing and we see an opportunity to do good and we sense the compassion of God well up inside of us, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter who it is. If God has put you in a place where there is a need and he's caused something to rise up in you where you sense, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to do something here. I may not know what, I may not know how, but I'm sensing something here, then you do it. When, when you are confronted with the lie, which is so prevalent around us, with, the, with the, 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 the wrong ideologies and the wrong theologies and the wrong all this stuff, and you sensing God, him calling you, you need to say something right here. What should you do? You say something in gentleness and humility, in love, but you speak. And you don't concern yourself about what might happen. Why? Because God has already got that under control. We just have to trust him. One of the realities of being a believer, Jesus told us about it. He warned us that, that we will be hated. Now, we live in a world that is so consumed with self-love the idea of being hated is, is unacceptable. You know, if, if I, everything, in, everything in the world around me is telling me to, to, to self-love or self-deify, then the idea of being hated is absolutely objectionable. But Jesus said, John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, and, and anywhere you see the world, the word if expressed like that, very regularly, you can also insert since the world hates you. You know that it hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Jesus has chosen you out of the world. He has set you apart to him. He has, he has transported you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and you are now different than the rest of the world. You are no longer of the world. You're still in it until he takes us out of it. You're still in it, but you're not of it. And the world can sense that. When you live by faith and you allow the truth of God, the light of God, the love of God, all these things that are, should be building up in you and, and flowing out from you, when you start allowing that out there, the world is not going to accept that. It doesn't want it. It doesn't like it. But we have to let it out because that's why we're here. You know, Jesus could have taken you to be with him as soon as he saved you, right? He left you here. He left you here so that the rest of the world would know that God loves them. And he's going to use you to tell them, however he might do it. Well, the Pharisees decide they've they got to get rid of Jesus. But Jesus doesn't hang around and wait for them to do something. He's got more work to do. That's what I love about Jesus. He said, okay, well, whatever. You do it. You do you. I'm going to go do God. Verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, 
he withdrew from there, and great multitudes, all, every time you read multitudes in this context, you can assume thousands followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name Gentiles will trust. Now it doesn't say that Jesus quoted this verse in front of the Pharisees. If they had they would have lost their brains. To use to, to suggest that the, that the Messiah one of his objectives was to reach the Gentiles was absolute blasphemy to them. And they would have started picking up stones. They, they will eventually do that. But if you're here today, and you're, how, many, how many Jews do we have here today? You know what that means? We're all Gentiles. And we say hallelujah. We say hallelujah that he came to save the Gentiles. I want you to notice something in verse 18. We have all three persons of the Godhead represented in verse 18 the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I always like to draw attention to those things because people sometimes get weird about that. Weird. Translate wrong, but that's another matter. A bruised reed. He refers to a bruised reed. A bruised reed, the idea there is, is someone who is weak. Um, the idea of someone who, um, and from a spiritual standpoint, somebody who may or may not be able to walk in in integrity or in, in, in the kind of faith that God would call us to. They stumble, they fall, they make mistakes, they sin, they repent and they sin again, they repent and they kind of back and forth. They're weak in their faith, you know, in the practice of their faith. The, um, the, the, the smoldering flax is the idea of weak spiritual faith that they just, they just may be young in their faith or ignorant in their faith, but they're, but they're not really there. Here's the main thing that he's saying here. Weak faith is better than no faith. The reality is, is that, that, that everybody has, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have some faith. Maybe not a lot. Maybe not strong. Maybe not well informed, but you have faith. And, and God is so compassionate. Jesus is so gentle that he will do nothing to crush even the smallest faith. Instead, he does the exact opposite. He comes along and he uplifts the weak. He encourages those who are just smoldering and he blows on that little spark in the, in, in, to, to cause it to burst into flame. He never, never, never crushes those who are, who are weak or struggling in their faith. And, and I believe that's an exhortation to the church and we are going to be so careful. If you're spiritually mature in your faith, be very careful around those who aren't. Sometimes we get so uppity in our, you know, spiritual maturity as to think that everybody should be like me. 
And if they're not like me, well, there's something wrong with you. And we act like it. And that's wrong. We should always be encouraging when somebody makes a mistake, somebody stumbles and falls. We don't point a finger at them and, and you know, label them as some you know, horrible creature. We're to come alongside them and lift them up and encourage them and strengthen them. That's what Jesus would do. Jesus reaches out to the weak ones and he does it more than he does to the strong ones. You know, the, the parable of the, of the hundred sheep, you know, 99, one wanders away. What does Jesus do? He leaves the 99 with a keeper and he goes after the one, the one that wanders. Why? Because he loves them. Does he love them more than the 99? Nope. The 99 don't need him. They don't need him in that moment. The one does. Same thing is true if somebody stumbles in their faith. Who do they need to come alongside them? Somebody that can lift them up. Be careful, those who are spiritually weak. Be tender, be gentle, be kind, be humble. And I think this should be a word of comfort to all of, to all of us, especially those who might despair over the quality or the, or, or the measure of their faith. They think, I, you know, I don't have enough faith. I'm, I'm a miserable, horrible wretch. Well, that might be true, but that's not the point. The point is that no, no, that's not how God looks at you. You know how much, how much, how he wants you to respond to him in respect to your faith is, is acknowledge the reality, the truth of how much faith you have, and then ask him for more. And you keep asking him for more, but you don't condemn yourself. He doesn't condemn you. You accept him. You accept where you are and you keep moving forward. We should continue to struggle in our faith if we have to, to get to that place where God gives us the victory in whatever it is we might be struggling with. Jesus will work with whatever you have. Whatever you have, whatever you bring to Jesus, he'll work with that. And then he'll bring you to a place of growing faith, of maturing faith to victory in whatever it is. The tiniest spark of faith is better than the utter darkness of unbelief. We should rejoice. If you have any faith at all, you should rejoice because God loves you and God recognizes, okay, that's, I, can work with, I can work with that. And he does. Don't let the great deceiver Satan tell you that you're not good enough for Jesus. That'll never be true no matter how messed up you are, no matter how many mistakes you make, no matter how often you think the wrong thoughts or do the wrong things, there'll never be a moment where Jesus would say to you anything other than come to me. Tiniest bit of faith can move mountains and it always moves the heart of God. We're gonna pray and we'll ask for more, more faith. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you, Lord God, that you hear our prayers, you know us, you love us, and that if we'll bring our, 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 our tiniest little bit of faith, you'll take it and you'll do something amazing with it. Help us to trust you, help us to believe you, and help us, Lord God, to, to take all these things that we've heard today, whatever that one thing is that you want us to retain, you want us to put into practice, I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to do that.
We thank you, Lord God, for all that you are going to do. And we do lift this time of communion up to you, and we pray for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and His kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith. If you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.